A reading from the book of Exodus. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless and imposing task on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom who was named Sephara, and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. When she could, when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bithmen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her own son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12, starting with verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members 
one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said in reply, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly ordered his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The gospel of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all this morning on this rainy day. I uh, wanted to start today, I have this illustration about a cell phone today I was going to start with, but I uh, actually had more cell phone drama this morning, so I have to tell you about that first. So uh, Ashley is so wonderful in our family, and she found a cell phone carrier that'll help save lots of money, and so we're like getting ready to switch to our, this cell phone carrier and doing all the things that you're supposed to do, and I, I won't tell you which one because then it's an advertisement, and you don't do that in the sermons, but um, so we're preparing to do all that, and, and we go through all this, and she's like, it's supposed to be super easy. You're supposed to just go through this app and three clicks, and you know, it's done. It was not super easy. Um, so last night, we're driving home from, we had lunch with our bishop and some other clergy in Cleveland, Tennessee, and we decided okay, our billing cycle ends today, so we have to end this and switch this today on the way home at like 8 o'clock at night that we have to switch this in the car. (laughs) So so we're sitting there trying to switch all this, and we're having all this drama. And uh, finally, it all started working for me. I was like, oh, man, I can text and call, and it's all perfect, and we're saving lots of money and everything. And come to find out this morning that Ashley's never gotten her (laughs) text message or cell phone uh, or anything working, and none of it's really working anymore, so... She didn't wake up with the alarm today. She didn't get my text messages or my phone calls. <laughs> so uh, anyway, that's where my wife is today. Um, but we're saving lots of money, so it's a good thing. Um, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah, see? You save lots of money when you don't have things. You don't you know, get rid of services. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, so speaking of cell phones, I, so I was 16 when I got my first cell phone, which at that time, that was considered pretty early. <laughs> That just shows how old I am. Today, it seems like the, the, the age of us getting a cell phone is like earlier and earlier. We're already getting pressure from our 10-year-old that all of her friends have cell phones. We're trying to hold back. We're trying to hold on. 
But I turned 16, I started driving, and my parents wanted me to be in contact, you know, have that possibility of being in contact. And at that time, in the early 2000s, most of my friends had one particular cell phone. It was one that pretty much everybody had. It wasn't the iPhone. It was the Nokia 3310. Like this was, the, this was the cell phone that everybody had and it was this big kind of bulky brick thing. But at the time it was cool and there were all these different face plates that you could put on it and you could play Snake or you know, whatever kind of games that you could on there. I feel like I'm like 100 years old as I'm describing this, but it was everywhere, okay? And apparently it was like indestructible. So even to this day, a lot of people have said that it is the most indestructible phone that's ever existed. You can throw it, you can drop it, you can apparently run it over with a car. I've never tested that myself and it won't break. Um, now since then, that rumor kind of went around. It's the most indestructible, you can't destroy it. And some YouTubers have found that it's not actually indestructible. <laughs> um, you can drop it 900 feet and it'll break. You can smother it and chop it with a hot ax. You can slice it with a sword. You can take coals to it. You can run over it with a train. You can shoot it with a rifle. You can crush it with a hydraulic press. And the Nokia 3310 still will not withstand those things, which is surprising. I thought it was indestructible, but it's pretty strong, still pretty strong. Um, but it's a reminder that nothing that comes from this world is really quite indestructible. <laughs> there are very few things in our lives that actually last through anything. The difficulty, the hellish things that we experience, the pain, the, the waters of chaos that swirl in our lives. There are some things that make it all the way through, but there's not a whole lot. So what are the things in the world that are fleeting, that are here just temporarily, and what are the things that are ultimately going to make it through? I think one of the things that's so challenging about our life, and perhaps the centrally challenging thing, is we often get those things confused. <laughs> so we often chase things that won't last. And both readings I want to talk about specifically today, our Old Testament reading and our gospel, are about God's unusual sustaining in extreme circumstances. So in the Old Testament, we turn the page. It's been really cool how we've walked through the story of the patriarchs over the past, and matriarchs over the past several weeks uh, in Genesis and all of these stories of these ancient stories of the beginnings of our faith and the beginnings of the people of God. This week, we actually turn the page to Exodus. So we go from Genesis to Exodus and we have the story. Um, we, last week, we talked about the story of Joseph. Joseph is in Egypt. He's ascended to second in command of the whole place. But now there's been a shift. There's a new family dynasty in Egypt that's begun. And so therefore, there's a new king. So those who were loyal to Joseph and sympathetic to Israel are no longer in power. The new ruler isn't even given a name, if you notice. The narrator doesn't tell us. It just says there's a new king in Egypt. He's described only as the one to whom Joseph meant nothing. <laughs> okay, so he does, he's not given a name, but Joseph doesn't mean anything to him. And it's not just Joseph. Joseph's like a representative of Israel themselves. So Israel means nothing. God's people mean nothing to the king of Egypt. This is in the story where we hear the music. Dun, 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 right? That phrase, knew not Joseph, is significant. Um, it, it means that there is something about this king to where he has no regard, not just for Joseph, not just for the people, but for God himself and for God's providence and even for the creative order. 
The new ruler knows nor cares nothing of all of that. He gives no care or concern for God's people. But he's in this bind. He tells his people, he gives a speech, and he tells his people he's worried about the threat that the Israelites pose. But the Israelites have also become a significant part of the Egyptian workforce and economy. So he's concerned. He's like, okay, if they rise up, then that's going to be trouble. And that's true. There could be a revolt if the Israelites continue to grow in numbers and suppression won't be an option. But yet so much of his life and the nation are dependent on this labor force. In standing against Israel and trying to suppress them and hold them back, he's not only against them, he's actually against God himself. Because it is God's will for his people to multiply. And Pharaoh stands in the way of God's intention. So this story isn't just a battle between Israel and Pharaoh. But it's God and Pharaoh that are in tension here. We're reminded that throughout history, dictators have often tried to deal with people as a problem. A hurdle to their dominance. One example of this, probably the clearest example that we know of is Nazi Germany where the Jewish problem is how it was described. Pharaoh's actions are textbook genocide here. People are objectified as a problem to be solved or in a positive sense for what they can do for the dictator. That's it, they're just objects, they're objectified. This is how human empires so often work. Might say empire itself, this is how it works. But by contrast, God is always God's leadership is always self-giving, rescuing, and healing. Our story is in sharp contrast to the way of the empires of the world. God's very creation of human beings from the beginning is not out of some need for God's self. I need a people to do something for me. No, it's out of an expression of God's love. That's where creation comes from in the beginning. So oppression is anti-creational. It denies the dignity and value of human image bearers. In this story, the Israelites are treated as objects, bodies which make bricks, and that's all. Because of this reality that oppression is against creation, oppression carries all kinds of dark consequences, some of which we see very clearly and some of which are invisible. Oppression, of course, negatively impacts the oppressed, but it also negatively impacts the oppressor. As the oppressor denies the dignity of the people whom he's oppressing, the oppressor denies his own humanity, right? Moves away from what it means to be human. So to act in ways that objectify other people is to go against what it means to be human. It's to become less human. To objectify is to go against God. Now, the reason why sin is bad (laughs) is not because God has this arbitrary list of good things to do and bad things not to do, naughty things and nice things. No. Sin means we move away from God's intention for a person's life, for our own life, and for the world. So evil is anti-creational. It's going against God's intention and purpose for our lives and for the world. Okay, So the king responds and gives two speeches. There's two speeches from the king. The first one is to the people of Egypt. I talked about this before, describing the problem. And then the second one is to two Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua. 
And he tells these midwives to kill each Israelite baby born right after they're, they're born. Now notice, it's, it's fascinating, this story. We get hints all over the place. These two women are named. The king's not named, but these two women are named particularly. Notice in the first speech, the king, we get the sense, the king can shape the entire will of a nation through this one speech, that all of the people follow him because he has that kind of power. But he is unable to shape the will of these two Hebrew midwives. They stand up to him. They don't do it, or they, they do it. They do not do what he says. They stand up to him, and then they hide it from the king. They don't tell him that they're going against him. These midwives will have nothing of the king's anti-creational plan. All right, so he gives this to the midwives. He, he says this, this is what you're supposed to do. But then he, of course, sees that his plan fails, so he takes a more direct approach. And he calls for all the people, everybody in the nation, this is the group I can form their will, to, to murder newborn Hebrew boys and have them thrown into the Nile River. The Nile River is significant, of course, throughout Egyptian history, but it was the source of life for the Egyptians. But here, Pharaoh has twisted it, and he's turned it into an instrument of death against Israel. Water has great significance in the book of Exodus. You see it all through. It's seen as this dark, murky chaos from which God rescues his people. I think part of our challenge as Christians is to remember that God reigns supreme over all the powers in the world, even when it seems otherwise. Christ's death and resurrection proved that once and for all, that there is nothing too dark for God. There's nothing from which God is, is scared or afraid of. There's nothing too dark. So we have this despair here at the end of chapter one, this genocide that's happening, and it's interrupted in chapter two with the announcement of a birth of a child, Moses. Now, it's really interesting, and as we heard this, it struck me again, like it says that his mother looked upon Moses and saw that he was a fine child. I don't exactly know what they're getting at by that, but it does echo the language of creation. When God looks at creation and says, it's good. This keeps that recreation theme. And this is not only the birth of a son, but the birth of a people, a, rescuing, a people rescued. The savior of God's people has been born. Israel has a new beginning and he will bring them to their place of Sabbath rest, which is the promised land. When his mother could no longer hide him from the king's murderous plot, she placed him in a basket and then placed the basket in the reeds along the bank of the Nile as Moses' sister watched. Another connection to Genesis is found in the fact that Moses is literally placed in an ark. Uh, this is, word is found only here and in the flood story. Both Noah and Moses are specifically selected to forego a tragic, watery environment. Both are placed in an ark and carried to safety on the very body of water that brings destruction to others. Both are vehicles through whom God creates a new people. These Israelite women, Moses' sister and Moses' mother, they pull the wool over Pharaoh's eyes and over the eyes of Pharaoh's daughter. It is clear that the women of Israel trust and revere God. In fact, you could actually say that's the whole theme of this story, 
the women of Israel trust and revere God. Now, we also see that it's not just the women of Israel, that Pharaoh's daughter, who shows compassion for Moses, is involved in this story. Indeed, Pharaoh's daughter's non-compliance with her father's decree, remember, he said kill all the Hebrew baby boys. She doesn't do that. It shows the weakness of the decree itself. A non-Israelite is invited to participate in God's plan, a reminder of the calling of Abraham to bless all nations. So what I, I see in this story that I like to focus on is there's so many ironies in this story. <laughs> there's so many things that we see that we go, it's supposed to go this way, but it's flipped on its head. God uses those the world considers weak, unlikely, those on the underside of power to accomplish his purposes. God uses five women in this story, which in the ancient world at this time was seen as unlikely. He uses five of these women to carry forward his will. But he doesn't do it in a way that they're puppets or instruments of this. God does this through their own will, creativity, and gumption. These ironies also remind us of God's presence in the story. Notice in the story, God's name is rarely mentioned at all. The way we're supposed to see God is in the ironies, in the ways that things are kind of going one way and then they're flipped upside down. Whoa, God's there. God's present in this story. The tables are turned. The beginning of Exodus shares similarities to the beginning of Matthew's gospel about Jesus. It is the Exodus story that allows us to actually read the story of Jesus through this light of redemption. Wait, there's a child born under the shadow of an oppressive empire and genocide. On, on the underside of power in this small town, this might be a redemption story. The Exodus event forms a people, and in the same way we see a people formed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In our gospel reading, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, it's kind of an odd way to phrase that. I mean, who am I to say Jesus' phrasing is odd? <laughs> but uh, but the, this way of who does people say the Son of Man is, is really a way of saying, who do people say I am? He takes on this title of Son of Man for himself. And he doesn't ask them this because he needs validation. He's not looking, he's not saying, hey, what do the polls say? You know, how am I doing here with, with everybody and, and everything right now? Because I need to know. No, he doesn't need validation. His question seems to be about the disciples. He's trying to get them to understand, do you get who I am? Because that's going to be important for your identity and your formation. So the disciples respond and say, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say Jeremiah. They're given these descriptions of these wild prophets who called out injustice, who spoke God's word fearlessly against wicked kings. A prophet is not just someone who foretells the future. In fact, an Old Testament prophet is not that, really. It's one who speaks the word of God, a person who calls out injustice and speaks truth to power and reminds the people of who they are. The crowds have seen this in Jesus. He's God's mouthpiece. He is speaking truth to power. And the crowds are right. Jesus is a prophet like them, but he's not just a prophet. So Jesus' follow-up question gets to the heart of the matter. It's like, okay, we've talked about who everybody else says I am. Who do you say I am? 
I think we're often a lot more comfortable asking the first question. So who does the world say that I am? I think we have a lot of cultural conversations about religion in the public square, right? What is the role of religion in public life? How does Jesus compare and contrast to the other great people of faith? What is the church's responsibility in the world? These are all good questions, really important questions. But Jesus reminds us there is a more fundamental question that goes to the heart. Who do you say I am? The ones who are seeking to follow me. Who do you say that I am? Peter's answer, Simon's answer, is significant. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So he takes this from, okay, you're a prophet. You're this amazing prophet who calls out injustice just like Jeremiah did, just like John the Baptist did, just like Elijah did. And then he says, actually, I, I think you're the Messiah. Messiah is, or Christ, is a really particular title, basically saying that you are the Jewish hope for the world. You are the one whom Israel has longed for. You are the chosen one. And in the first century, there had been a lot of so-called messiahs. And what would happen is they would get a lot of followers. They'd build up a following. They'd get traction. Then they'd be caught by the Roman authorities. And then their followers would be scattered everywhere. We saw that over and over again in the time before Jesus. And then whenever these so-called messiahs were killed, it was a sign to the Jewish world that the one who claimed to be the messiah isn't because they lost they got captured or they got killed. So you got to go find somebody else to be your Messiah. They failed. Now think about what happened to Jesus. After Jesus died on the cross, there was something unique that happened because his disciples seemed to believe that he was still the Messiah. So even though he was captured, even though it looked like he lost to the Roman Empire, something caused them to go, no, he's still the hope for the world. And of course, Christians have always said that's the resurrection. Here, Simon goes even further, though. Okay, so you've got prophet, and you've got Messiah, but then he says, you're the son of God. By saying this, Simon is saying that Jesus is God's true representative. In fact, by this point, the disciples were hesitant to use this kind of language. <laughs> Because language like son of God was not even really used for messiahs at this point. Well, when Simon says that, when he declares Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, Jesus turns then to declare something over Simon. Okay, you've said this is my identity. This is who I am. Well, here's what I declare over you. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. You've heard it said before that he gives Simon a new name, Peter. And that name means rock. So on the occasion of Simon's declaration that Jesus is God's true representative, Jesus says, Simon will be called Rocky. <laughs> he will be the foundation of the kingdom movement in the world. And when Simon Peter recognizes Jesus, it changes him. And it changes him so much, it, Jesus says it requires a new name of him. He has a new identity. And Jesus says he will build his church on him. Now, this passage is really controversial um, throughout history. It, the division is really over. The Roman Catholic Church tends to emphasize that the rock was built on Peter himself. And if you look throughout history, you see that that's the origin of the papacy, uh, you know, where the pope idea comes from and all of that. 
Protestants, by contrast, tend to emphasize that, no, it's Peter's faith that's expressed. That's the foundation, which is also challenging because it does say, on this rock, rocky, I'm going to build my church. So there's this tension there between, okay, which side is it? Is it the Catholic side or is it the Protestant side? And because of this controversy, more has been written about Matthew 6.18 than any other single scripture in all of history which I didn't realize. I was like, I don't know, Psalm 23 and John 3.16, they got a lot going on. People have written a lot about that. But no, Matthew 16, 18, throughout history, more has been written than anything else. And I think this controversy creates a false separation. Peter was the first leader. He was the shepherd. He was the one on whom the church was built. And yet that quality is defined not by Peter singularly, but by faith. One way to think about this is God always calls a real community with real people. It's not just an abstract concept. God calls a people. And that's always been the way we've known God to work. Jesus is establishing a new people of God around him. And that people will be built on the reality of who he is. Through this community of faith, the church, this community that's built on rock, God will put the world right. We'll bring heaven and earth together. We'll bring about justice and peace and blessing. And even the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. I thought it was interesting. I only noticed in our reading today, that's a different translation that we read. It said the gates of the netherworld will not be able to stand against it. Like, yeah, or hell, sure. <laughs> Today, it's really common for you to hear that Jesus came preaching a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, but instead we got the church. That Jesus came preaching something apocalyptic was about to happen, and when it didn't come quickly, his followers just decided, we'll just build an institution instead. It's a really common thing to hear. Like, we're never intended to have the church anyway. You know, Jesus came really preaching a message, and then we just turned it into an institution. In fact, there's so many people today who say, I love Jesus, but I, I don't love the church. I don't love the institution. I wanna, many of us want to hold a private spirituality, but because of the messiness and failure that comes with the institution, that's the church, we want nothing to do with that. And we have to acknowledge that we've earned that reputation, <laughs> the church has. And also, to be fair, the church is full of flawed human beings, who fail to hear the Spirit's voice. But Jesus has always been about calling a community of people to live the kingdom of heaven in the world, a group of people who would live by faith that a new world is coming. God calls this community together not because of their perfection. In fact, we can even say it's our imperfection that is a sign of this because we are always dependent on God. And many times we forget that dependence. We move in other directions. God doesn't call us because of our perfection or because we perform all the right functions. God calls a community together by faith. And our ability to participate in God's kingdom is not dependent on our perfection, but on the fact that we are witnesses to the reality that Jesus is the Messiah, the liberating King. So we need the church. 
if we say we don't need the church, we're saying God's work is really disembodied, that individual belief, individual faithfulness is all that matters. But that's not what we see in the biblical story. Jesus always calls a people, a community. You notice that. In the Old Testament, we talked about you know, the people of Israel. We've seen that consistently. And then as Jesus, even before the church uh, happens at Pentecost, right, we see that Jesus starts to kind of call a church around himself of tax collectors and sinners. There's always a community that's formed and that's called together. Jesus always calls a people, but those people are always witnesses to the Messiah. And when we live in the path that he's given us, the path of love and forgiveness and reconciliation and healing, when we do that, we have to acknowledge it's not because we're so great, because of our willpower we made it happen, or our creative initiative. It's really the path of grace. So Peter's task is not to call attention to himself, but to witness to the Messiah. So you could say, if you look at this and you say, okay, Peter is the foundation of the church. Really, all we're saying is Peter is the first one to say, look at Jesus. Focus on him. So we talk about things that last. I'm going to end here. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Paul is saying that in God's new world, there are things that will last. Not the Nokia phone, but there are things like faith, hope, and love that will make it in God's new world. Whatever we do and whatever we're guided by that is connected to faith, hope, and love, we can trust that that stuff really will last. This is not in my notes, this is it, but, but I really do believe that there are things in this life, creative endeavors, relationships, that we don't go, hey, one day, you know, this is all temporary and then it's all going to just be gone in a poof of smoke. I say, no, that stuff that's connected to faith, hope, and love, somehow in God's new world, somehow, I don't know how it all works, but somehow that's going to make it through. Somehow that's going to be part of it, and we're part of that now. Now, when we say love's going to last, we're not talking about warm, fuzzy feelings, right? We're talking about this very specific kind of love, love in which Christ gave himself fully and completely for his good world. Whatever we do in this life that's connected to that, faith, clinging on to God even when we can't see, hope, living now as if God is making all things new, and love, that self-giving commitment that God first shows us. Paul says that stuff will last. In confusing times, it can be really easy to lose sight of God's faithfulness. And so that's why we often get lured by other things. Whether we are aware of it or not, sometimes we go, maybe that's the thing that'll last. <laughs> maybe if I pursue that thing, that ideology, that uh, behavior, that's the thing that will last. That's why we're so lured. We cling to other things. But today we hear the good news that no matter what we face, God will not give up on his people, on his church, come hell or high water. The church is a family, a living, breathing reality on which Peter was the beginning. What does that mean? Well, we see throughout scripture that this family is built to last, that God is faithful. Neither the gates of hell nor the waters of the Nile River can stop God's faithfulness. 
And I think it, it's important to remember um, increasingly as, as our lives go along, it's going to be weirder and weirder to be part of a church. The, the world's just changing. It's going to be more of an odd thing. I mean, it's already shifted, I think, especially even through the COVID kind of era, we begin to see a bit of an acceleration of some trends that were already happening. Um, Christianity for many generations has been something culturally we kind of take for granted, something that a lot of people um, didn't have to commit to very much. It's just kind of part of the culture and part of life. And it's very possible to cultivate a kind of faith that could say of Jesus, people say you're a prophet. You say some great things. You say some powerful things. But yet, it allows us to keep Jesus at a safe distance while still wearing the church jersey. (laughs) But Jesus has not stopped forming a people and not stopped asking us the question, who do you say that I am? The good news has not changed. Jesus is the hope of the world, and his body is the hope of the world. We are best when we are transformed by him. That's our Romans passage. Transformed by the renewing of our mind. He is always our orienting reality. He is the true prophet, the one who speaks truth to power, who calls out injustice, and who listens to the cry of the oppressed. He is the Messiah. He's the true king, the ruler of the world. He is God with us, and we are his people. Amen.